0: This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windisch. I'm joined by Kurt Braddock, the author of the book, Weaponized Words, The Strategic Role of Persuasion in Violent Radicalization and Counter-Radicalization. Kurt Braddock is Assistant Teaching Professor in the Department of Communication Arts and Sciences at the Pennsylvania State University. He'll be joining the School of Communication at American University this fall. He researches the persuasive effects of terrorist propaganda and how that propaganda can be challenged. He's also advised multiple governments, non-governmental organizations, and practitioners on effective counter-messaging strategies. Kurt, welcome to the show.
1: Ah, Thank you for having me. I'm really excited.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about you and how this book came about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, my PhD work at Penn State, um, where I am an assistant teaching professor, uh, was focused mainly around terrorist narratives and stories and the ways that terrorist groups tell stories and the way that those stories can become persuasive to individuals to lead them to adopt terrorist ideologies, to support terrorist groups in other ways, or ultimately engage in violence on behalf of terrorist groups. So One thing that I found in looking at terrorist narratives and in my advising work with government agencies is that there was very little work out there um, in the research sphere that was translated in such a way that researchers understand it that practitioners understand it and that lay people can understand it. And something that I wanted to do was to develop a book um, that goes over several elements of communication practice and communication theory that can be picked up by pretty much anybody and and can understand the ways that communication affects the psychologies of the people that are exposed to that communication, whether it be from a terrorist group or from an organization trying to counter terrorist propaganda. So this was really born out of a desire for me to help practitioners to understand why terrorist communication is effective and how those organizations can use theory that we've had for decades to frame the messages that we're developing to fight that propaganda.
0: That really relates to my next question, because this book is rooted in academic research, but it has a very conversational and practical tone. As a communication scholar, how were you strategic in presenting this information in this way?
1: Yeah, so in doing research, doing any research, something that I try to um, put into any work that I do is make it understandable and digestible to the people that need it. Um, there is often a huge uh, linguistic barrier between research and practitioners, especially in the national security sphere. Um, A lot of times we don't speak the same languages, and that's unfortunate because I think there's a lot of work that can be done between research and practitioners that doesn't get done because a lot of times we don't understand each other, just the language that we use. So as a communication scholar, I thought it was important to write a book that was understandable, not just in a theory-based sense, which, as you said, absolutely right, it's completely based around communication theory, and in the book, I talk about those theories in detail, But I think the real heart of the book is to translate that theory or the way that I translated that theory into practical, usable steps in fighting or even just understanding why terrorist propaganda is effective. So it was very strategic uh, because I wanted the book to be accessible, not just to other researchers. I wanted it to be accessible to counterterror practitioners, policymakers and the everyday reader. So, yeah, very strategic on my part, I thought.
0: You begin the book with examining previous models of radicalization, and you conclude that radicalization is a process of persuasion. We also know that not all people with radical beliefs resort to violent actions. Can you talk more about the role of persuasion and how you navigated the issue of radical belief versus violence?
1: Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because something that's often lost in, uh, in work on radicalization and its relationship with manifest terrorism is the fact that it's not a one-to-one relationship. Uh, very few who become what we call radicalized actually engage in violent action. That's a very important thing to understand. But to get at why I consider radicalization to be a persuasive process— Um, you need to understand how persuasion is defined within the communication literature. Generally, when I and when other persuasion researchers talk about what persuasion is, we essentially just mean when somebody engages with a message that's meant to change or intended to change their beliefs, their attitudes, their intentions, or their behavior, there is that change. And many of the models, the existing models for radicalization talk about engagement with other individuals, engagement with messages, engagement um, with propaganda that changes their beliefs and attitudes. Now, for a communication researcher like myself, it's obvious that this is a persuasive process. It's engagement with a message and its movement of beliefs, attitudes, or behaviors consistent with the message. And that's how I conceptualize radicalization. Now, the The refined radicalization toward violence, a process that I call violent radicalization, which, if I remember right, if I can remember the title of my own book, mentions violent radicalization, um, that is when somebody engages with messages or experiences events that refine the radicalization process to the point that they feel inspired to actually pick up a gun, make a bomb, or engage in manifest violence in some other way. But all of these processes they're they're couched in engagement with messages, whether it be online or via interpersonal relationships or with static propaganda and the The arguments I make throughout the book are based around a conceptualization of radicalization that looks at the persuasive elements of it.
0: You also look at past counter radicalization programs to look at lessons learned. And you refer to supply side and demand side programming. Can you explain how those types of programming differ and where we've seen past programming focus in terms of supply and demand?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. When I spoke of the supply side and the demand side of counter radicalization practices, I'm kind of talking about two different schools of practices that go on in the counter radicalization sphere these days. Um, when I'm talking about the demand side, I refer mostly to um, educational programs or state institution counter radicalization campaigns that are meant to get individuals to either avoid adopt, avoid adopting a radical ideology or in some cases um, you could argue these programs are geared towards de-radicalization and meant to get people to abandon the radical ideologies. But recently, in the last, I'd say, two or three years or so, there has been a greater movement for tech platforms to remove the possibility of individuals engaging with the messages at all. Um, and those you see in the form of uh, content takedown. So um, during the end, well, it's hard to say the end because they're still around, um, but Toward the end of the height of ISIS's, quote, popularity, um, a lot of ISIS Twitter accounts or ISIS-supported Twitter accounts are being taken down by Twitter. Um, now we're seeing a lot of radical right-wing, sympathetic Facebook pages, Twitter accounts, things like that being taken down. So it's really two different schools of how to deal with counter-radicalization, or I'm sorry, with uh, potentially radicalizing messages. One is to engage with the messages and engage with the people who may be vulnerable with the messages, and the other is to remove the possibility of the messages being in front of those individuals in the first place. Now, as for which one is more effective, there is very little data out there to say one versus the other. Um, In some initiatives that do counter-radicalization, one of the more comprehensively research programs is the Saudi prevention, rehabilitation, and aftercare program. The prevention element of that overall program is geared towards counter-radicalization. The Saudi government claims uh, very high rates of success, and that's not not uncommon. We often see when governments uh, develop these programs and they implement them, they often do claim high rates of success. But unfortunately, there is very little transparency around them. So it's very difficult to understand how effective they actually are. Um, on the other side of the coin, we have the takedown efforts, which, again, we have very little data on how much that affects beliefs and attitudes at the individual level. But we can count how, how many fewer, how, how fewer people are engaging with that content. Um, one of the things I advocate for a little bit in this book, and I advocate more in my other work, is the need for experimental and quasi-experimental evaluation of these programs to, to understand at a really refined level how effective they are at changing beliefs and attitudes. But the, the large takeaway is that there are these two schools of thought. Um, they're often used in conjunction with one another, and unfortunately, there's very little data to show um, how much they affect are effective, how much they affect beliefs and attitudes and um, and the degree to which they they decrease violence
0: in evaluating those past programming um, efforts, you did find a couple of lessons about effectiveness in particular about argumentation and source credibility. Could you share what you learned there absolutely
1: uh so the source credibility uh, information, um, unsurprisingly, is drawn from my experience as a communication researcher. So going back to the sphere of communication, there is a long, long history of research, not necessarily within the, uh, the domain of violent extremism, but in political communication, and health communication, interpersonal communication, um, that if an individual... Perceives the source of a message to be credible, then they're more likely to be persuaded by the message. It's unsurprising, but um, it's 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 a very well-established uh, fact within the literature. It almost seems silly to have to mention that, but there are there is a history within counter radicalization where the the source from which a message is delivered to individuals who are vulnerable to radicalization by terrorist propaganda is not considered. So the example that I use in the book and I've used it elsewhere and I almost feel bad because I've beat up on this program and every 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 talk that I do. Um but I think even the practitioners that were involved with the program would agree. Um there was a program several years ago called Think Again Turn Away, which um was an online-based program developed by the Department of State where they essentially engage with ISIS supporters online um from a Department of State sponsored Twitter account. Now uh, you can imagine how credible ISIS supporters believed that Department of State was when they engaged with them. And when the program was evaluated by PR specialists and others, they considered it to be an abject failure. Now, since then, um, a lot of lessons have been taken from those failures to, pay, to show a bigger um, consideration of source credibility when engaging with individuals who are vulnerable to radicalization. So there are lessons to be learned from this history of communication research, source credibility being one of them. Absolutely.
0: So moving to narratives, how do you define this term? And what's the difference between a narrative and, say, an ideology?
1: Now this is where some people listening if they are narrative scholars will disagree with me. Um I would even say at this point I like I since I've written the book I I am I entertain the idea that a narrative is defined differently than I did in the book but um for the purposes of my research so far I define a narrative very much like somebody would define a story. It is an excerpt spit of uh, spoken or written that in which there is a plot, a setting, there are characters, those characters engage in purposeful actions that cause change, and there is a resolution to what is going on within the narrative. Now, um, some researchers that I very much respect would say that's not a narrative, that is a story, but within much of the communication and persuasion literature, that is considered a narrative, and coming from where I'm coming from, that's why I define it that way. Um, others would define a narrative as being a system of stories. So, several stories that have similar themes would build an overarching narrative. And then, beyond that, several narratives would build what might be considered an ideology. Um, a lot of people consider an ideology to just be a system of ideas, however. Um, but in my experience and through my training, um, I, I've come to find an ideology not to just be a system of ideas. That would almost be more like a grand narrative. Instead, an ideology provides an audience a, some ideas and an understanding of how to engage in activities in support of whatever ideas that underlie the narratives and the stories that they, they engage with. So it's almost like a, a scaffolded series of excerpts at the lowest level being a story or what I would call a narrative. Above that would be a system of stories, which others would call you know, a narrative. And above that, we would call a grand narrative and or ideology, which is what really motivates people to engage in behaviors on behalf of them.
0: You talk about several examples of terrorist narratives, and you mentioned the example of the Turner Diaries in several cases. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about this narrative um, as an example and why that's so persuasive to some people?
1: Absolutely. And the 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 example of the Turner Diaries is a good one. And I, I, you can't see it, but I'm making air quotes around good because of what happened because of the book. Um, but in, in the book, at the beginning of every chapter, I start with a vignette. And the beginning of the narrative chapter um, is the vignette associated with Timothy McVeigh and his bombing in Oklahoma City in 1995. Now, the reason that the Turner Diaries and other books like it and other narratives like it can be so persuasive to somebody like Timothy McVeigh is because they associate what's going on in the real world with the events within the narrative. And when you associate real world events with narrative events, then you can extrapolate what might happen as to what's happening in the narrative as what's going to happen in the real world. So to give a definitive example, Timothy McVeigh was, quote, radicalized uh, in part because of what happened at Ruby Ridge and what happened at Waco in the years before the Oklahoma City bombing. Um he was exposed to the Turner Diaries. And within the Turner Diaries, um, the general one of the major plot points is government overreach and um government targeting of those that own firearms. And one another of the overarching themes that the government's going to come take your guns. And when McVeigh saw What happened at Ruby Ridge? He associated what happened at Ruby Ridge with what happened in uh, in the Turner Diaries. And the Turner Diaries, I mean, I guess spoiler alert, um, it ends with the bombing of a federal building in what is described in the book as almost a counterattack against the government. So McVeigh extrapolated what happened in the book. He saw it as being a reflection of what was going on in the real world, and he thought that he had to fight back against what he saw as an overreaching government that was targeting those who had a similar ideology as as his own. So when an individual or an audience can see something going on in a story or in a narrative that happens in the real world, um, there is a real, a real chance for persuasion there. And not just with respect to violent extremism, but also with respect to any other narrative, whether you watch a movie or read a completely benign book. It's the ones that connect the real world to the narrative world that are especially persuasive.
0: In that chapter, too, you talk about um, a concept that I think is really interesting, and I wanted to get you to talk about a little bit more, parasocial relationships. And I thought that was really interesting also in the context of um, the digital world. Could you talk about kind of what those are and why they're important in this narrative process?
1: Yeah, sure. So parasocial interaction uh, or parasocial relationships is my favorite thing to teach in my classes on persuasion because everybody I teach about it says, "No, that's not true," but there is a decade-long his decades-long history showing that it is true. So essentially, <clears throat> parasocial interaction is a process that occurs when we see somebody in a TV show, a movie, somebody we read about in a book that we come to like or admire or somehow affiliate with ourselves. Um, this can be based on attraction. It can be based on similar interests. Um, but generally we build a relationship with an individual online or, but it can be online, offline, or via other media. Um, I believe parasocial interaction is based around the way that individuals developed relationships with newscasters and how we came to trust them. People like Walter Cronkite, people thought he was like their uncle and they came to trust him because of how he was. But um, in the context of fictional narratives, whether they be violent or not, people can be persuaded by the actions of those that they interact with parasocially because they like that individual. And it's been found that when people like other individuals, even if they're fictional, they tend to develop agreement with their beliefs and attitudes and in some cases the behaviors they engage in. So we develop these one-way relationships with characters that we affiliate with, and because of that, we develop beliefs and attitudes consistent with those characters. It's very, very weird, but kind of cool.
0: It makes me think of celebrity culture, too. People who follow celebrities and almost like they know them.
1: Absolutely. that That's absolutely parasocial interaction. I mean, I'm trying to think of an example with my fiance that won't get me in trouble about the TV she watches, but she watches a lot of TV shows like This Is Us and uh, a lot of kind of the weepy shows. And she develops parasocial relationships with the characters to the point that she, she is really, really engaged with them and feels what they feel. And it's not unique to her. I mean, I... I have parasocially interacted with characters my whole life. The example that I use in class—if anybody listening ever watched *Boy Meets World* growing up—I uh, developed a parasocial relationship with Topanga because I had a crush on her. So she she had she had beliefs and attitudes in the show that I developed on my own, and it's those sorts of things. Now it, it doesn't have to be the I, my class. Whenever I teach us, always laughs at me when I talk about that example. But another example that they they understand a little bit more is I also develop a parasocial interaction or relationship with people like Paul Rudd, because he seems like he'd be a cool guy to go get a beer with. So again, these relationships, they're not based um, solely on attraction. They're not based solely on affiliation, but there's a combination of things that make us like characters that we engage with. And because of that, we want to be like them.
0: So when we're looking at counter-narratives, What are they and what must a counter narrative achieve to be more persuasive than the original narrative?
1: That is incredibly tricky and something that I'm still grappling with. And a lot of people in security studies are still grappling with. So a counter narrative, Uh, is basically a narrative that, uh, as I defined it, just a narrative like I defined before, um, but the themes in the narrative are meant to undermine the themes that are within terrorist narratives. Um, So there's a couple of things that you can do in counter-narratives to make them a bit more effective um, than perhaps your enemy's narratives are. Um, A lot of times this has to do with drawing out certain inconsistencies in the terrorist narratives. Um, Some examples that I've used myself include Um, A lot of ISIS narratives talk about um, the 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 um, the beautiful caliphate and how it's basically um, this utopia where where Muslims can come live in peace. But you can use illustrations and pictures and depictions within counter narratives that show that's not the case. Aleppo was blown apart and was hardly the utopia that they talked about. Um, other examples would be that if in a terrorist narrative, they um, terrorist narratives often depict individuals and organizations that they see as enemies in black and white terms. They're always bad and we are always good. Um, by developing narratives that introduce a bit of gray area um, that maybe depict targeted characters in a different way, you might be able to undermine those kinds of characterizations. There are several things that you can do, but it's mostly hinges around planting a seed of doubt within the audience about the ways that the the terrorist narratives depicted people and events.
0: And it seems you start with a very succinct description of how to do thematic analysis as a first step of really understanding the narrative that you're trying to counter. Can you talk more about that and the role of themes in terms of the systems of stories and constructing an effective counter narrative?
1: Yeah. So a lot of the problems surrounding strategic counter-messaging with respect to violent extremism has been a, largely a a failure to understand what it is that drives the persuasiveness of terrorist propaganda, uh, at least historically. We've gotten much, much better at it. So one of the first things we need to do if we know how to develop counter-messages is to understand what the terrorists are saying in their propaganda messages that are meant to recruit radicalize. So one method for doing that uh, is a form of content analysis um, called theme analysis, where the idea is to break down all the text, whether it be spoken or written into manageable chunks. So we look for individual elements of the message that kind of group together To develop these larger categories of topics that appear in the narratives. So, give you an example. Um, For my PhD dissertation, I did a theme analysis of the narratives that appear on the website of an animal rights extremist group called the Animal Liberation Front. Now, on that page, there are I think 88 individual narratives that I analyze. And if you want to develop counter messages against the Animal Liberation Front ideology, you can't take the time and refute every point they make. So. What you do is you go through and you go story by story, line by line, and look at the ideas that comprise each individual narrative. Once you've done that, you look at what individual ideas or themes um, comprise those codes that you made for the narrative, and you see how they group together. So essentially, you're taking this large group of text and breaking it down into smaller groups, and then you're taking those smaller groups and breaking them to even smaller groups. And that really refined group of ideas are one of the themes that drive most of the narratives. So um, out of 88 stories, I think I developed something like 305 individual codes, and you would call these the ideas that, that, that make up the narratives at a very, very low level. And then I grouped those 305 codes or ideas into 10 themes that make up the bulk of the Animal Liberation Front narratives. So one of the themes that drove those narratives um, was the, the overall innocence of animals. There, I mean, that's something you would assume to be within Animal Liberation Front narratives, but you can see all these individual codes that make up that theme, and that was one of the 10, was that animals are innocent. So the idea is to get these large scale ideas that underpin everything that appears in the narrative set.
0: And one of the practices that you recommend in terms of counter narratives is to disrupt analogies that are in these types of themes. What's a good example of this in practice?
1: Yeah, something um, to, to explain this, it makes sense to talk about, The ways that terrorist groups often try to depict their enemies, as an example, Um, in a lot of neo-Nazi propaganda, not just not just contemporarily, but going going as far back to. I mean, the original Third Reich and Nazi Party is to depict Jewish people as being um, less than human, um, being vermin. Often you hear rats, pigs, things like that. So that is an analogy they're trying to draw, and in doing so, it dehumanizes the people that they perceive as enemies. To disrupt that analogy, it's important for counter-narratives to, as I said earlier, shed the, quote, enemy in a different light that shows that they aren't less than human, that they are human beings, because that makes it more difficult for individuals who are exposed to the sorts of propaganda that's meant to dehumanize um, those individuals. It makes it more difficult to dehumanize them, and as a result... Um, makes it more difficult to engage in violence against them. So it has. To, anytime analogies are made by terrorist groups about perceived enemies, it's important to disrupt those analogies because they're often um, the ones that are meant to dehumanize and um, and and glom all of their enemies together in a group that can be easily attacked.
0: Another theme that you talk about is what I think of as all or nothing thinking or binaries why are binaries important for extremist narratives and what can we do to dismantle those?
1: That's another one that's extremely important. Um, That has to do with kind of that black and white thinking that I talked about earlier. Um, When I talk about a binary, I mean a lot of terrorist groups to be, for their narratives and for their other strategic communication to be effective, they need to depict themselves as universally good and their perceived enemies as universally bad. And any gray area that falls in there disrupts what it is that they're trying to say. So there are all these binaries that appear in a lot of different types of extremist narratives and strategic communications. White supremacists paint the world as others versus white. Um, uh, violent fundamentalist um, jihadists paint the world as Muslims versus the West. So these are very, very strong binaries, all all that are um, they're characterized by two distinct categories in which there aren't, there is no middle ground. And by developing counter-messages, whether they be narratives or otherwise, that show that there is a middle ground, that not all characterizations can be binary in kind, it dismantles that binary altogether. So terrorists' uh, ideologies that are built on these binaries, by by targeting those binaries, it helps us to disrupt the ideology as a whole.
0: You talk also about the dissemination strategy of these counter narratives. And you mentioned earlier the example of Timothy McVeigh. And I know you talk about culture and the role in the dissemination strategy. And in his case, he's uh, an American. And you talk about um, American attitudes towards authority and how messages are received and, and a few other examples. hmm can you talk a little bit more about the role of culture in source credibility and just dissemination strategies?
1: Sure. So, what I was talking about there is the fact that we I talked about source credibility in very broad terms earlier, um, but different cultures will perceive different sources as being credible. Now, in the Timothy McVeigh example, if we were to develop counter narratives or other strategic communications that are meant to undermine McVeigh's ideology. Um, It would largely be targeted at a Western audience and Western audiences, Mm -hmm. especially in the United States, um, value autonomy, individualism, the ability to make our own decisions. So we don't respond as well to these kind of large authority figures as much as we respond to those in our social circles that we trust. So a counter narrative that is meant to target a terrorist narrative in a Western culture might be more effective if it's not distributed by some central authority figure. Whereas in the Muslim world, the uh, imams who are greatly trusted by their followers would have more of a rate of success in disseminating a counter-narrative because imams are central to the the distribution of stories that help build the foundation of an ideology. So in developing a counter-narrative, it's important to understand the audience that you are distributing the counter-narrative to and the cultural context in which it's being distributed, because messing that up can uh, undermine the effectiveness of even the best constructive counter-narrative.
0: Another strategy you discuss is attitudinal inoculation. Can you explain what that means?
1: Yeah, my favorite. Uh, this is this is what I've been working on uh, now, actually, in the last, I'd say, year. So attitudinal inoculation refers to a communicative practice that is analogous to actual medical inoculation. So for uh, those of your listeners that that don't understand exactly how vaccination or inoculation works, essentially a doctor will give you a shot of a dead or weakened virus. Your body recognizes that virus and develops antibodies to it. Um, And in the future, when you encounter that virus in the real world, you won't get sick. Ideally, the virus that the doctor exposes you to will not be strong enough to make you sick, but it'll be strong enough to trigger your immune system. Now, attitudinal inoculation is the same exact idea, but psychologically with respect to ideas. The idea is that if you expose somebody to the idea that their beliefs and attitudes are going to be challenged, especially in the Western world where we value making our own decisions, if we say, listen, somebody's going to come try to persuade you to do A, B, or C. Um, It raises the specter of threat. They go, I don't want to be threatened to be persuaded. And then you give them counter arguments to challenge the persuasive messages they're going to encounter. Um, This is called the elicitation of threat first, and then refutational preemption second, to use the the academic terms. Um, In doing so, You step away from the person, and research has found that individuals will develop their own counter-arguments against those persuasive messages they'll encounter. So in the same way that the human body develops antibodies after being exposed to a small dose of a virus, we develop psychological antibodies when we're exposed to a small dose of an idea, if we think that our beliefs and attitudes are going to be threatened. So whereas counter-narratives are often used for individuals who are already gone down the, the radicalization path a bit. Inoculation is most effective for individuals who have not yet encountered a terrorist
0: ideology. So, can extremists use attitudinal inoculation as part of their persuasion effort to keep someone radicalized?
1: Oh, yes, and they absolutely have. Um, Every time a terrorist group says that the government will tell you A, B, and C, and here's how you fight it, that's attitudinal inoculation. Anytime a radical right winger tells somebody that you cannot trust, um, the media that is inoculation, those sorts of things are inoculation uh, strategies. Now this kind of goes down a bit of a rabbit hole um, because the next logical question is how do you defend against that and there's been in, there's been interesting research to show that you can meta inoculate people or you can inoculate against inoculation messages. Now, this is a relatively new string of research that's still being undertaken. Um, I find it extremely interesting and extremely promising, but this is all to say that inoculation strategies are most useful if you get to the individual first so I've argued that inoculation strategies for counter radicalization against say um, radical right wing extremism in the United States those sorts of campaigns would be most effective for children in schools um, and people who and individuals who may not have been uh, surrounded by or enveloped in those sorts of ideologies, so getting there first is very important because the inoculation effect can be very strong.
0: And you talk about some of those examples in the book in terms of putting some of these extremist beliefs in context for uh, younger folks, and especially pointing out examples in their in their social circles. And you mentioned the role of physical isolation in some types of radicalization. I wanted to ask you, um, particularly as it relates to physical isolation, do you see current events as we record during the time of COVID 19 as relevant to radicalization and counter radicalization efforts?
1: Very, very much so. Um, A line of research I'm getting involved with now. is is the use of disinformation online, uh, especially disinformation that has the potential to produce violence. And COVID nineteen has not unexpectedly, but um, a little the, the degree to which it's it's triggered kind of violent beliefs and attitudes is a bit surprising. Um, in the time of COVID nineteen, we're seeing individuals who are voluntarily putting themselves in little online echo chambers where things like Unfounded conspiracy theories and uh and strategic disinformation by foreign actors and domestic actors, and it's all they're enveloping themselves in. This is the only thing they see, and when that occurs, uh, people tend to go down that rabbit hole more and more. And we're seeing these sorts of things. Um, one of the the more dangerous, I believe, disinformation campaigns and campaign isn't really the right word because it's not very much organized, but it's a, it's a disinformation ecosystem, I guess, is the idea that the COVID-19 pandemic is a hoax perpetrated by actors who wish to inject individuals or vaccinate individuals with um, tracking devices and other sorts of things like this. So it builds this idea of this nefarious other. And because of this supposed existence of this nefarious other, we have individuals coming together and think that there needs to be a civil war in the United States to fight the powers that be. Um, you, people, listeners might recognize this as being called the Boogaloo. And we're seeing a lot of these Boogaloo individuals appearing at, um, at the marches, the, the, the protests that are going on in the United States right now. And there is some evidence to show that a lot of them are trying to uh, instigate violence at these sorts of things. Not all, but some. Um, so there, there is kind of this, this, this kind of whirlpool that they go down. They, they get this information online. They, they isolate themselves in these ideological echo chambers. And within these ideological echo chambers, they develop ideas about how to fight back against those that are described as enemies. And in some cases, it can become violent.
0: In the next part of the book, you talk about reasoned action theory, and you talk about how our background, like where we're from, our upbringing, and things about us like our race and gender play a role. Can you talk more about reasoned action theory and how it relates to narratives and counter-narratives?
1: Sure. So uh, reasoned action theory is not a communication theory per se. It's more of a theory of decision-making and how we come to engage in behaviors. Uh, And the theory basically states, there are several elements to it, but the theory basically states um, that our beliefs and attitudes are affected by essentially who we are, um, how we've been raised, our socioeconomic status, our race, our culture, our religion, uh, TV we watch, things like that. All the things that make up who we are uh, cultivate beliefs and attitudes in us. And those beliefs and attitudes then dictate what our intentions are and intentions then dictate what our behaviors are. Um, within, I use reasoned action theory in the book as almost a framework for identifying points at which you can develop counter narratives or use inoculation messages or even develop argumentation messages that can target people who might be developing, developing beliefs and attitudes that are not exactly uh, the most peaceful. So as an example. Um, individuals often develop beliefs about norms from their social circle. So they look to their social circle to see what the proper ways of behaving are. And that is a point where we can inject messages that might fight against problematic ideas that resonate within those social circles, because norms are a very strong way that people come to develop beliefs and attitudes which go on to intentions. So rather than use reason to action theory as a communication theory, it's really an idea, it's really a framework of how we come to engage in behaviors. But it all starts with those individual level traits that make up who we are as individuals.
0: And how do emotions come into play when we're talking about persuasion and radicalization?
1: So this is a great question because a lot of people consider radicalization and persuasion and even the, the engagement in terrorism to be an intrinsically emotional process um, just because of, of what terrorism looks like and what resonates within us when we think about it. Um, but what's interesting about emotions And the driving force behind emotions, and there are different, people have different theories about these sort of things, but the framework that I use is something called evolutionary psychology. And the idea behind evolutionary psychology is that just like we developed opposable thumbs to pick things up, just just as we have adapted that, or just as we no longer have a tailbone or our appendix doesn't work anymore, um, just as we have developed all these things, we've also developed emotions in the same way. So survival of the fittest is the idea that those uh, organisms that develop certain things that help them react to their environment are the ones that are going to live and pass on their DNA. So we became humans because we developed opposable thumbs and we were able to engage with tools in a, in a way more than our, or better than our primate ancestors. Um, in the same way that occurs biologically, emotionally, or rather uh, the development of emotions um, came about in a similar way. So I'll give you an example. Uh, anger, anger is one of the emotions that appears in almost every, uh, taxonomy or every list of emotions that we feel. And evolutionary psychology would explain that we survived. We can feel anger. We feel anger now in response to things because our primate ancestors that we came from developed the ability to feel anger in response to things in their environment that made them have that made them react in ways that helped them adapt to that environment so anger is really a response to when we can't achieve a goal because there's an obstacle in our path evolutionary psychology argues that anger that we feel now is really derived from the idea of when, say, a tree fell in front of one of our primate ancestors and they had to move it out of the way, the ones that felt anger, the ones who felt that burst of energy and could move that tree out of the way, are the ones that survived. So really, evolutionary psychology looks at emotions just as it looks at any other kind of um, biological development throughout human history. Now, with respect to violent radicalization, uh, terrorists obviously use emotions in their propaganda for a lot of different reasons. So again, I'll stick with anger for the sake of simplicity, but a lot of terrorist groups uh, develop propaganda that's meant to instigate anger in their audiences against those they perceive as enemies. So just as our our primate ancestors might have moved a tree out of the way because they felt this emotion that gave them this boost in strength and focus... Uh, terrorist groups try to get people to feel anger, to move obstacles that are perhaps security forces. Maybe they're those they see as less human. So rather than move a tree out of the way, the terrorist groups try to trigger anger to get us to move their enemies out of the way. That's just one example. There are several examples that I cite in the book, um, some positive emotions, some negative emotions, all of which have their own, what are called action tendencies that move us um, or affect us in certain ways. And terrorist groups exploit those. Now, that said, I also say in the book, um, which is kind of the central thesis of the book, we can also use people's emotional responses for the purpose of counter-radicalization as well. So emotions are a hugely important part of uh, all these processes. And I think that a better understanding of where they come from and how they work would help us better develop messages to challenge that terrorist propaganda.
0: Yeah, because sometimes when we see messaging from government officials, or even just campaigns to try to get someone to stop doing an illegal behavior, Mm -hmm. a lot of times they're motivated by the emotions of guilt or shame Mm -hmm. in this kind of law and order framework. So Mm -hmm. I know you talk about terrorists using anger, fear, pride. When we think about counter narratives, do we need to take into account and, and look at emotions that are more consistent with the narratives? Because it seems that the guilt and shame tactic isn't particularly effective.
1: Yeah, it really, and this is a question I get quite often. It's almost like, is there a one-to-one relationship between the emotions that are are in the terrorist propaganda you are trying to counter? Do you use the same emotion? Um, and you can absolutely, but I also think that some, um, to determine what emotion you should target, or even going beyond emotion, how you should develop the counter terror or the counter propaganda. Um, it requires a very in-depth audience analysis of what your audience values, what they might respond to, and and the sorts of things that would elicit certain emotions. So um, one example that I, I, I'm very, very interested in, I haven't pursued it in terms of research, but others have done um, campaigns related to guilt in uh, among... Um, Muslim communities to keep people from, again, this is all from the ISIS literature, was that they would develop guilt appeals that relate to how um, potential ISIS fighters would, how how that would feel if their mother looked down on them, or they were ashamed that they went on to join ISIS, because the mother is a central figure in Muslim communities. So they found that when they developed guilt appeals that focus on how a potential fighter's mother might respond, um, they found those to be quite effective, actually. So understanding the audience and understanding what they value is critical, because what somebody feels guilty about in the United States will be very different than what somebody will feel guilty about in Syria, Iraq, Kuwait, wherever. So it all comes back to doing proper audience analysis and understanding your audience, not just... The, you know, the sociodemographic factors that are easy to figure out, but also what they feel and how they understand the world around them.
0: What do you think the role of satire is in counter-narratives?
1: Oh, I love that question because there are a couple of researchers whose work I'm reading that I'm really, really interested in. One being um, Danny Young at the University of Delaware. Um, I actually, uh, just getting to America, I'm doing work with uh, Katie Borum-Chadu, at the Center for Media and Social Impact, where both of them do excellent work on satire and how comedy might affect individuals with respect to the radicalization process. I think, and I'm giving a large caveat here because I haven't gathered data on this myself, but I think there is a huge role to play for satire and even lampooning in um, in counter-radicalization. And my favorite example is, um, again, when um, during the Iraq War, and al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was the predecessor to ISIS, when they were kind of at their height, their leader, Abu Musab al- al-Zarqawi, uh, there's a famous video of him firing a machine gun in the desert. And it's it's kind of your standard propaganda video. It's, it wasn't anything particular special about it. But um, it was found later, there was a video clip that showed the same clip later, but the video was panned out and he had these goofy white sneakers on. So like, those sorts of things a lot of a lot of propaganda videos are built around the idea that the individuals within them they are all strong and they're uh, they're infallible and they are these these mythic individuals um but some of them wear goofy white heads and by doing that you can kind of put that splinter of doubt in your audiences that maybe these people aren't as strong and aren't as serious as they're made out to be um, another example that I really love this is from years ago now and it was uh it was from work done by my um, my friend and, and former PhD, uh, one of my supervisors, Dr. John Horgan, in one of his books, <clears throat> I believe it's the psychology of terrorism, but it might be walking away from terrorism. In any event, it told the story of an individual who um, wanted to join Al-Qaeda, I believe, um, because he bought into the Al-Qaeda propaganda. He thought that they were holy warriors fighting the good fight against the West and, and everything that you know about Al-Qaeda propaganda. So Um, one day this individual was in a cave with his commander and they were sitting down to dinner and the commander, uh, proceeded to pick up a dinner knife and pick his toenails with the dinner knife. And this completely threw the guy off. And he goes, these people are not who they make themselves out to be. So things like that, I mean, they're not exactly satire, but kind of Tearing away, kind of that that veneer of what they make themselves out to be, can be hugely effective in these sorts of things. And we see this in in um, not necessarily with respect to satire, but a lot of individuals who left ISIS did so because they their experiences were not at all what they thought they were going to experience. So they just left. So by showing, by, by as I said, by by tearing away at that at that mask of what they put themselves out to be, I think can be very effective. And satire is one way to go about doing it.
0: So the last section of the book, I want to ask you about, and you mentioned this a little bit when we were talking about COVID before, you you talk about online disinformation and mm-hmm. advancements in areas such as deepfakes. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do these pose challenges to counter-narrative efforts?
1: This is deepfakes and disinformation, I think, right now is the greatest threat to security generally because of how fast... Um, communication technologies are advancing and how fast graphic technologies are advancing. Um, Disinformation, generally speaking, is information that's deliberately spread um, to dupe those that are exposed to it. Um, And one form of disinformation are these deep fakes. And for those unfamiliar, deep fakes are the videos you see where a face is superimposed on another body um, or an individual is somehow made to seem as though they engage in a behavior or said a certain thing. Um, they are getting better and better, and I say so in the book. Deepfakes—I mean, they came from the internet, so of course the first thing deepfakes were used for was pornography. But there had been there have been several uh, examples, mostly just to show how the deepfake technology works, where individuals have developed deepfake videos where they have narrated a public figure saying something, and it is almost indistinguishable from the public figure themselves. Um, there was a, a video that went viral several years ago where I believe it was Jordan Peele of Key and Peele. Um, he narrated it. He does a very good Barack Obama impression, and he developed a pig of Barack Obama essentially saying what he was saying. And it showed that as, as the video panned out, it showed it was Jordan Peele doing the talking. So, That kind of technology, and that was years ago, that kind of technology, I think, is a super, super important thing to start looking at because we could start seeing things like um, extremist groups with the capabilities could develop propaganda videos where they show their enemies victimizing those that they never victimized or saying certain things that they never said. So um, whereas in the past, when these technologies didn't exist, extremist groups were Responding to things that their their purported enemies engaged in. Well, they don't even have to wait anymore with these deepfake technologies. They can develop the propaganda on their own. And although they're not perfectly infallible, um, somebody like me or you or a layperson would be very hard pressed to understand that it wasn't a real video because it looks very very real. It's to me that it's very very scary that that technology to me because it's getting better exponentially. And as far as I know, there there are um, artificial intelligence algorithms to identify them and things like that, but the deepfake technology is so pervasive and so easy to use that virtually anybody can develop them.
0: So you recently presented your work to the UN Counterterrorism Committee. Could you tell us about that experience?
1: Oh yeah, the uh, I, I do some work for the UN Counterterrorism Executive Directorate, where I looked at uh, I've looked at. Um, ISIS narratives. And more recently, I've looked at programs that are meant to counter terrorist narratives. Um, it is, I mean, it, it's going to be very cliche and perhaps unsatisfying, but it really is cool to go in that big room and see all the faces looking at you and talking. And it's nerve wracking at first, but once you kind of you know, hit your stride, you feel um, part of something bigger. And I'm, it's, it, I'm very, I felt a lot of pride being in a room where the sort of things that I study and the things I do might actually help Keep some young individuals in all of these countries from engaging in violence. Um, It's rare that I get to see that the work that I do has an impact on the ground, but I want my work to be impactful on the ground for individuals that need it. So, actually going to talk to practitioners in that way is really, really, really—it's validating. I mean, it's humbling, and um, it's cool to see the rubber meet the road where research actually meets practice. So that kind of experience for me is kind of the reason I do this sort of thing. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book.
0: Well, Kurt, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, would you share what you're working on now?
1: Oh, I'd love to. Um, so now, as I said, um, I am working on a lot of work related to disinformation. And one of the places that disinformation has Become a more serious problem than it is than it already has been is with respect to a phenomena that has been. I mean, it's not widespread use yet, but it's called stochastic terrorism. It's something I'm very interested in because it has to do with implicit communication and how it leads to violence. Essentially, what stochastic terrorism is is when a public figure says something that may seem implicitly aggressive um, toward a particular enemy and it inspires violence on the part of one of their followers. And it's called stochastic because the term stochastic comes from statistics, which means it's a phenomenon that is impossible to predict when and where, but is reliable in its occurrence, meaning it's going to happen, but it's very difficult to identify when and where. So to give an example, um, when a widely known public figure talks about the media being the enemy of the people, And we start seeing individuals being threatened that are in the media by those that support this particular public figure. Um, If violence were to occur against the media on behalf of the individual, I would call that a stochastic terrorist event. Um, This is a very, very tricky thing to get through because I'm a very staunch First Amendment advocate. Um, and I do believe that people should be able to say whatever they want, as long as it does not directly inspire violence. But I also think there's a phenomenon here that needs to be explored as to how individuals inspire violence because of what they say on the basis of their implicit statements. Um, I do think that there has been increase in these sorts of events and these sorts of statements. I've seen statements on Twitter where public figures have said, um, essentially, maybe not advocated for, but threatened a second civil war. Um, one of these individuals was a sitting senator. I've seen individuals who are state senators um, release statements saying they need to develop a army of Christian warriors because Christianity is under attack, things like that. Now, these things, they don't directly advocate violence because they the people who put the statements out are very strategic about what they say. But it's not that far a stretch to say they implicitly advocate violence. And that's what, I'm, that's what I'll be studying next in my second book, which I'm hoping will be coming out within two years or so. Um, we'll look at this phenomenon called stochastic terrorism and um, what we can do as citizens to challenge it. But while maintaining what I believe is, is, a, is the sanctity of the First Amendment. And it's a very tricky puzzle to, to solve, um, but hopefully I'll be able to have to come up some answers within the next two years.
0: Well, I look forward to hearing what you come up with, and thanks for being on the show today.
1: Oh, uh, Thank you very much, Beth. This was a lot of fun. I was happy to talk with you. Great questions.
0: Weaponized Words, the Strategic Role of Persuasion in Violent Radicalization and Counter-Radicalization by Kirk Braddock is available now from Cambridge University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.